can never travel to Texas now. We insulted their barbecue. Oh, I would never do that, Mike. You're alone in that. (laughs) Texas, if you're listening, that's only Mike. Welcome to Tencent Takes, the show where we discover the comics are actually people, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and I am joined by my co-host, the Soylent Saucier herself, Jessica Frazier. Oh my god, that's a terrifying notion. <laughs> <laughs> am I 2D? Please don't tell me I'm 2D. Uh, how are you doing? I'm I'm good. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> Excellent. If you are new to the show, our main episodes drop every other week and provide in-depth looks into interesting moments in comic books and how they tie into pop culture and history. But today is one of our Dollar Bin Discovery mini episodes that we do in between those deep dives. We spend a lot of time rooting through Dollar Bins at local shops looking for interesting stuff. And while a lot of the issues we find are fun and weird, there may not be enough for us to do a deep dive on. At the moment, we always reserve the right to change our mind later and come back. Each of these episodes features both of us talking about one random issue that we came across in the dollar bins and discussing what it is, what goes on inside it, and why it's interesting. Basically, these are mini episodes that are meant to provide you with some weekly content in between our more in-depth discussions about the weirder and more interesting moments in comics history. So we are actually changing the format a little bit where instead of just coming to the table with random issues, we are picking a theme for each mini episode. So that we have something vaguely similar to talk about. You know, tie everything together a little bit with a nice little bow of some sort. (laughs) Yeah. So tonight's theme is dystopian science fiction. So, uh, Jessica, what are you bringing to the table tonight? So I have brought in Mars issue number three titled Transformer. By Mark Wheatley and Mark Hempel. That would be Mark with a K first and Mark with a C second. I just need to note that. Mm. Edited by Mike Gold. Published by First Comics. And this was in March of 1984. Oh, okay. It's a First Comics book. Interesting. It is. Fact. Yeah. So we start off with Morgana and a tall, egg-shaped silver robot that has the inscription MT-482412-SC, whom they call TZ, I guess? <laughs> and it also has Morgana's face on it. Okay. So, I, you know, it's number three. I don't know what's, what that's about. So that's something I just had to jump into. Is it like an ongoing series or is it an anthology? It, it's an ongoing because it definitely okay. like jumped into like a storyline for sure. So they run into another creature who seems to be like half cat. And mm. it's a person like with very cat like features and hair and a tail, but, you know, completely naked because she has fur, if you can imagine. Weird. Yes. Yes. So her name is Fawn, and she doesn't seem to be the brightest character in the story, which, lovely, right? Mm. Anywho, Morgana has just awoken from a 10,000-year nap, I guess. Like you (laughs) do. previous issues, you know. But she's irritated to find that in, you know, the 10,000 years, in that time, a city has been built in her neck of the woods. Heaven forbid. 
<laughs> so she goes to the city to figure out who dared, I guess, build a city in 10,000 years. I need to reiterate. That's a long ass time, girl. <laughs> Stuff's going to happen. So they get a guide to go under the city because they need to break in, you know, and it's a character that they are familiar with named Milos. So I assume he got introduced earlier in the issues. So he leads them underground. We get backstory on some of the drama from prior issues, namely that Morgana had been left by her companions because they were told she was helpless Mm. and that the life support bot said she was paralyzed again. So I guess she has a problem with being paralyzed and they thought her life support was damaged while fixing her. So Morgana's beat. She's tired, even though she just woke up from a 10,000 year nap. So she goes back to sleep and she dreams that she is being sacrificed. Her mind is being given to give life to the city that had been erected. Mm -hmm. And then Morgana is awoken only to have difficulty breathing. A windstorm had picked up and made it difficult for her to catch her breath. So she's carried away by TZ once she collapses due to lack of oxygen and passes out, you know, this is the 80s. You know, everyone's every woman's frail. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. Yes. So the wind dies down. They stumble into a chamber filled with figures wearing robes and they are clearly performing a ritual. And it turns out that the trusted Milos is offering Morgana's mind to breathe life into the new city. So Teezy and Fawn figure out that Morgana is being affected by Milos. They try to outrun him, but Milos does some fancy spell work and starts commanding an army of really intense aliens to try to get Morgana's body. Creepy. Very creepy. Meanwhile, in Morgana's mind, the forces are trying to take over her consciousness to get her to become one with the city. And she starts affecting the city like her breathing is taking on the wind. Her heart is pumping and could be felt in the city walls. And she feels trapped. Her mind mm. is the city. So Teezy and Fawn are still fighting to get her out with Teezy sacrificing herself to fight off the aliens pushing Morgana into Fawn's care, who drags her out of the city. When it looks like Teezy is about to make it out to the other side of the bridge and outside of the city, Teezy falls and the bridge collapses. Morgana is jarred awake, yelling, no, I don't want to be the city, and then asks Fawn where Milos and Teezy are. We end with Fawn's sad face and them walking away with the facade of the city in the background. So, <laughs> that. So there was a secondary eight-page long story afterwards that was called Black Flame, the Heliquin Ride. Hmm. And it followed a completely different story with an absolutely different vibe uh, that I was also unfamiliar with. But it involved a dude, Black Flame, surprise, who I heavily suspect is supposed to be half demon. Okay. Or person who turns into a demon when upset. I, I don't know. Either way, he's saving this little girl from her parents who have swapped with literal demons. And he's like, sorry, kid, your parents are gone. But, like, we'll get you somewhere safe. But, like, he gets upset thinking about how the demon parents were treating her. So he slips and turns into a demon form for a second. So, anyway. A lady demon poison ivy knockoff complete with bright red hair and toxic green bodysuit only somewhat covering her skin. So you just said with bright red hair. So was this a, was this a full color comic? It was. Okay. 
I don't know why I just kind of assumed that it was going to be a black and white since it was a an indie book from the mid 80s. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was color. It was full color and like vibrant, bright colors as well. All right. So she's trying to track down the little girl. So it's like an explosive race to get her to a safe house, which he does, but just barely. <laughs> the end. Mm. It was pretty wild, like totally different vibe. So I'm just going to be discussing the main comic because that's my prerogative. <laughs> but it was an interesting comic. I, I will try to go back and see if I can find the first couple of issues because I'm so curious. I want to know more about this, the backstory and the characters. The writing was fun. I enjoyed that it was like a complete story start to finish. Like I didn't know who all the characters were or some of the little pieces, but it didn't matter for the resolution of the story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was it I still felt very connected and satisfied with the story, regardless of that. The art was fun. It was like very playful, colorful, like I said. The aliens were like shades of pink and orange. The city was bright yellow and the caves had like these shades of purple. So yeah, it was it was really interesting. I'll check it out. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah. Well, what about you? <laughs> uh oh. The laughter. No, I'm just I'm laughing because I also chose an indie book from the eighties. Nice. Yeah. We really are on theme. Right. Yeah, so I went with New York Year Zero from Eclipse Comics, and this was published by Eclipse in August 1988 when they were still in Forestville. The story is by Ricardo Barrero, who was an Argentine writer whose comics were mainly published in Spanish, Italian, and Dutch, but this appears to be one of his few English-language comics. The art is by Juan Zanotto. It was lettered by Wayne Truman and edited by Letitia Glozer. And what's really interesting is that this was apparently part of a project where Eclipse was republishing foreign language comics for an American audience. And the Spanish language version of this comic was originally published in 1984 as Nueva York Año Cero. I should note that this is a black and white indie comic. Okay. So it reminds me a lot of like the 2000 AD stuff that was coming out. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But this comic begins in the jungles of Venus, where we see a battalion from Earth trudging their way through a steamy jungle swamp. We're told via an unnamed narrator that the army is making a, in quotes, strategic withdrawal, which is really an evacuation from the planet because the war against the Venusians turned out to be the exact opposite of the cakewalk that was promised by high command. Earth's superior technology doesn't actually work that well because fungus grows all over metal in seconds and... That's something that we see in action when a Venusian fighter blazes down on the military group and the soldiers' anti-aircraft guns jam. So as a result, they lose a number of people and vehicles to the gunship. And then the officer in charge orders them to head towards the undergrowth where they can take cover. Only it turns out the shore of the swamp was trapped, and so they lose even more people to the mines. And then a thick fog ends up saving the survivors because Venusian ships don't have infrared vision. So the patrol limps on until it arrives at a military base where they're hoping to get onto a transport home to Earth. However, they're told that they need to fall back and camp out at these unprotected coordinates because there are only enough undamaged transports to get everyone that are currently in the base off planet. And as a result, like more transports are incoming, but it'll be another 24 hours and the patrol will be sitting ducks at their campsite. So they're, you know, understandably upset because they're basically being told to wait and probably die. 
That said, they begrudgingly follow the chain of command and head out again. And then the narrator lingers and he abandons his squad when they're not looking and he knocks out the guy who turned them away and steals his uniform. Damn. Yeah, the the breathing mask that everyone has to wear on this planet hides his face so that like, you know, kind of helps him sell the disguise. And then he's able to get on a transport ship just as his old unit attacks the base, but they're blown to smithereens by mines that have been set up to help ward off the Venusians. So our narrator manages to make it home to New York, New York in the year of our Lord, 2015. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tell me about like seven years, eight years ago, please. Tell me about yeah. it. Yeah, New York eight years ago was a very dystopian, overcrowded city. Okay, check. Yeah, we see that the Statue of Liberty no longer has a head. The World oh. Trade Center, the Twin Towers are still around. Oh, and okay. And there are also oh. mega structures like everywhere. It, it's serving some Mega City One vibes. Okay. Yeah. And then the soldier goes through his discharge process, revealing his name is Brian Chester. We find out his military contract had a withholding clause where he had to reimburse the military for fuel costs of transport. So he only has $16 after a year of service and he's not allowed what? to take this. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, oh, this feels a little more accurate than it should be. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. He's also not allowed to take his firearm or his military biostimulator with him into the city. And then there's this moment of dialogue that's actually, it's just heartbreaking. He's sitting there and he's pleading with the people who are taking all this stuff away from him. And he says, I've got no house, nor relatives, nor friends in New York. I don't even know where I'll sleep tonight. The city is a jungle. At least let me keep the gun. Yeah. Goddamn. Yeah. Wow, but, that you feels know, way too real. It's brutal, man. Like It's Ooh. it's impressive. And then they uh, they still turn him out. And then they also take his boots, but they do offer him a pair of practical shoes for the low, low price of $7.50. I, yeah, that sounds incredibly real. I, yeah. I hate everything. I hate everything. And our society sucks. Wow, this comic got a lot right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and then the quartermaster who, like, there's some queer coding with the quartermaster because he keeps on calling him darling. And he's got, like, kind of this pencil mustache mm -hmm. and all that. Okay. But the quartermaster takes pity on him and he gifts Brian a brand new bulletproof vest. And with that, Brian goes out into the city. We're told that New York is the capital of the city of the five states that still comprise the United States. That sounds right. Yeah. 30 million people live there now. Hunger and unemployment are rampant. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the city is a super metropolis now. Fact. Okay. No, he's right. Yeah. And then as Brian's walking down the street, a sniper in an apartment window starts randomly shooting at pedestrians and Brian takes cover while the police roll up. And that's where it ends. That sounds like I not to be dramatic, but like that feels incredibly real. Yeah, I hate it's... that. I hate that how right they were about that. And here's the thing. Like, you know, they sat there and they were like, how bad can we make this? Like, yeah. nobody was like, what do we actually think it's going to look like in 2015? They were like, what's the worst case scenario that we can think of? And then some. You know, it's one of those and things where it feels it feels a little bit like RoboCop, where when you're watching RoboCop and they're talking about the privatization of like all these emergency services and everything, you're like, this was supposed yeah. to be like highbrow parody. And mm -hmm. and it's like, mm, ugh. This is a little yeah, more uncomfortably real than I was expecting. Really but like, making a statement now. Yeah, but I got to say, I, I really liked this, actually. Barrero's story, it's 
economically written, but it fills us in on everything we need to know while keeping the general pace just kind of whipping along. There were a couple of individual moments that I really loved with the dialogue too, like that one that I just told you about. Um, Zanato's art is just gorgeous too. It reminds me a lot of Carlos Esquero's art for 2000 AD, Mm. like, cause you know, he did Judge Dredd and the Stainless Steel Rat. Yeah. It has that really cool mashup of sci-fi technology with chunky and grimy aesthetics. I'm not sure if the comic was originally in color, but this version is all in black and white and it's great. Like it's very stark and I never felt confused by the action and the panels. They all feel really cinematic and how the shots are framed. There are a total of four issues in the series and I managed to get the second one. So I'm really excited to to read that and see how the story goes too. Very cool. Yeah, this wow. was, um, I mean, it's, it's pretty bleak, <laughs> um, but it's also really fun. Like I was surprised. Yeah. So oh, yeah, that was exciting. Well, I think that's it for tonight. So we will be back next week with another full deep dive into something. I don't know what we're recording these pretty far in advance at this point. So we'll see. But uh, until then, we'll see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson and Jessica Frazier, and edited by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan MacDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who's at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter for now. The official podcast account is TencentTakes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica is spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sao, V-A-N-S-A-U. We're also on Hive, Macedon, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. The complete list is in the show notes. If you'd like to support us, please be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.